welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And my name is Steve. You didn't interrupt the music this week. I didn't. I So we're talking about, we're, we're still with our giants of the food industry with episode two. And I don't think it's on the schedule, but I would be okay with talking about Campbell's Soup because I'm feeling a little under the weather today. You know, I'm, I don't know if it's allergies or what, but I've got a little tickle in my throat today. And I hope yeah. there's going to be a lot of cuts because we don't have a cough button. So there's going to be a lot of cuts uh, while I have to stop and cough today. I just, yeah, I it's I just am feeling drained. Like I just am very, oof. so I just. Well, we had a uh, Wizard of Oz episode this week. We had 60 and 70 <laughs> yeah. mile an hour winds blow through. Uh, we think the neighbor thinks that we had a tornado come through, nah, like a little baby tornado. Baby, baby, baby. Like F. Zero. Zero point one two. <laughs> no, I went back and I looked at the uh, which way the storm was coming. It was coming. Typically, our storms come west to east, and this one did come north to south. And as that trampoline blew by the window outside, yeah, it was going so- north to south. So shout out to uh, our homegirls, Christy Zontini and McCall Fried Eggs uh, for, thank you, Christy, for making, Christy, sorry, for making Steve such a nerd, uh, weather nerd over here. It was going from this direction to this direction. So okay, so WHIO <laughs> yeah. lost God their, love their, their audio feed and James Brown Who's, set to, yeah, he's like and he the, held up. So for people that are not from around here, James Brown is like the lead anchor at WHIO. And he held up a sign. Yeah. What did this, do you remember what it said? Yeah, it said, it directed everyone to go to um, the radio, the AM and the FM radio station. You could still watch what was going on, but you had to listen to it on the radio. Yeah, there's just like a little side screen of, and I couldn't tell who it was at first. And then the camera like zoomed out just or nudged a little bit and you could kind of tell that it was James Brown. I was like, you're getting the lead anchor to do this. It's not even a cameraman. All I could think of was WHIO. Why don't you just run a little banner? Yeah, they got like the money. Do, like you do with school closings right, every day. Yeah, whatever. Maybe, you know, that guy was off because he only works in the morning for school closings. I don't know. Yeah. But it was pretty. We got a chuckle out of it. It was, well, it was an interesting night. So Steve wasn't home. He was actually south a little bit. And uh, I had stayed home with the boys and they were kind of freaking out, which is unusual. Jack's a little skittish at storms, but Rupert doesn't normally mind, but both of them were getting kind of nervous. I was sitting up watching in the Heights and had to turn the volume way up. And I was wondering, I thought maybe we should go. I mean, this is some pretty heavy hail. Maybe we should go to the basement. And then I saw a 10 foot trampoline fly by the window. And I said, let's go boys. And they took off like a rocket. And, uh, and we stayed down in the basement for, for a little while. So, uh, took out one of our, our, our like umbrella. We have a table out back and it's got like one of those big umbrellas on it to provide shade and it, it bent hit, it in half. Hit, hit the neighbor's fence and, yeah. and actually it hit their house too and did a little bit of damage to their house. Really? Yeah, a little I bit. I didn't know that. Yeah. But that neighbor that had the trampoline was very kind and came over and said, of course I'm going to pay for any of the damage. And we said, ah, that umbrella was kind of junky anyway. It's it fine. was already bent. It's fine. I we're was not just gonna... too lazy to go carry it out to the trash. Yeah, we're not going to charge him for that. But yeah, it was. Uh, it's what happens when you literally our backyard looks out over a cornfield. And I guess that's what you get. So anyway, like I said, we are continuing on with our series on the giants of food. Yep. And there are just so many similarities as we have done our research. You know, we have to, we're picking out who we're going to do each week and we read up a little bit about them and we've watched some shows and stuff like that. But there's just one common trait that really comes out. These guys were met with adversity mm-hmm. and lots of different failure mm-hmm. and they, they persevered and they kept going on and, and pushing they had their vision, and they just they, they didn't give up on their vision, and they ended up being very, very successful. Like we said last week, yeah. uh, Harlan Sanders was, what, 60 in his 60s yeah. before he became a success with yeah, this. Yeah, I think we're going to see that a lot throughout our series. And you mentioned watching a few shows. Um, I don't want to say it's a primary source because it's not, but 
Uh, if it's you, what piqued our interest. Yeah, it's what piqued our interest. There's a series on the History Channel called The Foods That Built America. Um, there are also other, f- you know, other food phenoms that we're not going to talk about. But it's really interesting. If it's something that you want to check out, it's on Hulu. You can find it on the History Channel. Um, really interesting. Yep. So, so, Steve, I got some. I got a question for you. I got a obvious. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the Heinz fortune today. Yeah. So before we get into this, there's some questions I've got to ask. And I got a question for you. Okay, let me go first this time. Okay. What is the difference between? Okay, it's Heinz. We're going to be talking about ketchup. Right. So what is the difference between the spelling of ketchup and cat soup? Cat sup. Cat sup. I call it cat soup. Cat soup. What? Why? Um, so actually. You actually know this? Yeah, I do. Actually, they're the same thing. They're talking about the same thing. Um, ketchup, it used to be what you are calling cat soup. Used to be actually spelled K A T C H U P, catch up, like catch up, like that joke in my favorite movie, Pulp Fiction, about the baby tomato and the mama tomato. Um, it the first documented case of it being called C A T S U P was in a poem by an author by the name of Jonathan Swift, who is kind of famous if you're into poetry, and he spelled it. Um, C-A-T-S-U-P, but he also was talking about, um, he's talked about um, a fish-based relish, ketchup, and caviar, which he spelled C-A-V-E-E-R, which is not how you spell caviar. So I think catsup. Was he just illiterate? I mean, it was in the 1730s. Okay. So, eh. Um, but so cats up what it was originally spelled catch up, catch up. And Jonathan Swift just misspelled it. And then it got switched over again. So cats up. Okay. Well, this isn't making sense because this stuff. So I have a bottle of Heinz ketchup here Mm -hmm. as an inspiration for our show. And this wasn't invented till the 1800s. So I'm calling shenanigans. No, well, maybe Heinz ketchup wasn't, but there were tomato-based sauces in Europe before that. Okay, but it's not ketchup as we know it today. Uh, No, I mean, he modified the recipe and stuff, but there was something similar-ish to... Because that's what... And we'll find out in the, in the show that that's what... He got the recipe from his German mom... He improved on a recipe. Okay. Right. We'll go on. So, so what's your, what's your up, question? So cat's up is sort of the original spelling over in Europe. Catch up is more of like a mo- more modern American spelling. My question is, what are these 57 varieties that Heinz has? Okay. Because I've seen catch so up. <laughs> Heinz, as we'll get into the story, was looking for a marketing technique. And so he wanted, he said... Heinz 56, it didn't have a ring. Heinz 58, it didn't have a ring. Heinz 59, it just didn't ring. It didn't sing to him, but Heinz 57 did. And so it really has nothing to do. It's just made up. Just a random number? It's just a random number. Some people will say it's they had 57 different products, but that's not the case. Well, because I'm According sitting here looking at a bottle of Heinz ketchup, and it specifically says 57 varieties. Yeah. And that's all marketing. It's all false advertising? Yeah. But, okay, this happens to be the plastic bottle. But if we had the old glass bottle, uh-huh. that 57 is strategically placed so that when you tip it up. Oh, you tap on that it. That is where you tap to get oh. the ketchup to come out. I was wondering, too, like, there might be 57 varieties now, do you remember? I don't know if they still make it, but for a while there, Heinz was making colorful ketchup. Do you remember that? You could get like yes. blue ketchup and green ketchup. And they said that they did that because school kids asked for it. And if they ever came up and they said, we would like to see yellow ketchup, Heinz said, we will produce yellow ketchup. Are they still making that, I wonder? I've not seen it in a while in the stores. I don't stores. know. I remember we used to buy some when Matthias was little. He liked the green and you... And that's why. The kids like the green. They asked the kids. Interesting. And the kids said, we want green ketchup. I feel like if they had asked for yellow, 
It looked like mustard. It would look like mustard. You could get some real fun pranks out of oh, that. Oh, okay. Look, we're going way... We're going in the yeah. weeds right we, now. We better get into the story here. All right. Well, we are going to go ancestral uh, from the beginning. So John Henry Hines, the father... His daddy. Yes. Father of the famous Hines. John Henry Hines was born in Germany, and he produced wine for a living. He spent his entire childhood in a vineyard. And at the age of 19, he went into the military. And when his service was up, he returned home and then decided to move to the United States. Now, this is in the uh, mid, early to mid 1800s. Um, And nobody really knows the true reason for his decision to pack up and move because the Heinz family wasn't poor. So it doesn't stand to reason that John needed to leave the country to get rich. Maybe he had to leave the country for other reasons. <laughs> but I mean, it wasn't like a time of war really or anything. Um, so even though during this period of time, leaving the, your European country to go to America was to, to get money, money yeah. was that's pretty much the only main reason for moving to the U.S. Um, only Germans whose relatives were already there were willing to take the risk of leaving their lives in Germany and moving across the ocean. Nobody really wanted to go to a foreign country to have no friends or acquaintances. It's kind of a big risk. It'd be a big step. It's uh, I it's not it. that much different from now. So I'm wondering, maybe he had a little trouble with the law. Could be. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. I'm not going to slander John Hines. I'm name not either. Because I'm just, the Hines family, I'm just wondering. Were, they were good people. Anyway, John Hines took the risk, and he, at the age of 21, along with some other migrant families, settled in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, um, which was very popular for German emigrants. Could have been a girl. I don't think so, honey. He's he's a good... They're, they're good people, these okay. Heinzes. Stop saying bad things about Henry Hines, or John Hines. He decided to build a brickyard, and he started by opening a small business. It also... Turned out to be a good place for love. So if he did leave to get away from a girl, maybe she was a pest. Maybe the girl in Germany was a pest. Maybe. Anyway, he met the love of his life in Pittsburgh, a conservative, hardworking, and very religious woman named Anna Margaret Schmidt. Uh, I'm going to assume her name is pronounced Anna. Probably. No, She's good, from Germany. Good assumption. Anna had migrated to the United States from Hessen, Germany at the age of 20. And at the time, German immigrants traditionally always kept together and even marriages were contracted within the German community. So they were a very tight knit group. And you still see this in some area, you know, in some different cultures. Um, I know some of the more traditional Jewish faiths are kind of like that, where they're very strict on who you can marry. Um, Some, of the more of the uh, Middle Eastern cultures are like that in that they have more kind of a, not arranged marriages, but they want you to marry within your, your cultural population. Well, there's a good chance his name was Johan. That's probably true. So Anna and John Johan <laughs> married and she gave birth to six children. Without which we will not have Heinz ketchup. Correct. The firstborn, so the eldest son, was named Henry John Hines. Now, I'm telling you, as you're doing research, the, Henry, John Henry, Henry John, I had to go back and read twice to make yeah, sure where so I was at with all Dad this. Dad is John, son is Henry. Yeah. So Henry John Hines was born on October 11th, 1844. So, yeah, it was early 1800s, yeah. yeah. As a boy, he grew up surrounded by his hardworking family and started gaining experience in agriculture at a very, very young and tender age. Henry's mother always spoke German to Henry and the other kids, his siblings, and he learned German and being very much a stickler for the rules of German, all the, the linguistic stuff. There's a lot of rules yeah. in German. Um, he, he was a stickler for these rules, which remained one of his key qualities in life. Now... I had to do a little research because there was a word that came up, and I had to see what it really meant. But his being a stickler for the use of the correct rules of German and his insistence for attention to detail has been described as a pedantry trait, which I then started looking up what that word meant. What does it mean? Huh? It basically means like you're a stickler for the 
for the rules. Oh, okay. And and but it's been linked to um, being on the spectrum, maybe for like um, Aspergers. Really? Yes. And so now this is purely my speculation, and there's nothing. We don't have any evidence yeah, to back and this it's up. It's based only what has been. Because that word was described to use him, mm-hmm. and it was so it was recorded about Henry Hines. I admit I had to look up the definition, and digging further, I found a link that basically said that nobody had diagnosed him with being on the spectrum, and well, I and I only offer this up as seeing pedantry used to describe his German, how he spoke German, and how he lived his life. And I could see that. I mean, people who are on the spectrum are very much um, sticklers for, you know, they want to do, generally speaking, of course, we're making some generalities here, but generally speaking, they're very much like they... They're rule followers. Yeah, in general, they're, they're genius in their own right. Oh, yeah. And, and many many people have turned out to be highly successful. Like we just watched on Saturday Night Live, uh, Elon Musk just recently revealed that he has Asperger's. All kinds of. Um, yeah. Dan Aykroyd has Asperger's. Um, Temple Grandin and I just, has yeah, Asperger's. And I just I mean, wondered if. Really? And I just wondered people. if he did. And this was one of the traits That's that very drove interesting. him. Yeah. And there's no way that we probably will ever know because Asperger's was not a diagnosis back yeah. then. And I mean, really, Again, it, we, it would only be anecdotal evidence. Yeah. And it's purely my speculation. That's interesting. Yeah. So anyway, back to the story. When Henry turned six years old, he started to help around the house. And the garden, at the age of nine, Henry basically nailed the recipes of pickles from his mom and started selling homemade grated horseradish in downtown Pittsburgh. Holy cow, we have a nine-year-old granddaughter. She needs to get her act together and get a job. Now, even though many of his peers worked (laughs) just as hard as Henry did. I don't believe it. (laughs) Henry Henry realized that he could also maybe make uh, his living and build a career off doing this. Yeah. So... While the rest of the children kind of worked to help support the family, Henry was, his mind was going on about some other things right here. When Henry turned 10, his parents gave him about three quarters of an acre of land. And when he was 12, he they gave him another more land, which came out to about three acres of land. You're kidding me. No. And Henry grew vegetables on his land. Now, Maybe it was just the family, the family land. They said, Henry, this is your land, a garden or whatever. I don't think it was deeded or titled to him or anything like that. I'm on the upside of 40. I don't even own an acre, let alone three. What in the world? Okay. Three acres of land at 12 years old? I guess that's that's amazing to me i don't know like the fact i don't know i know a 12 year old and i don't think she could tend three acres of land and grow vegetables and market them and well times have changed i guess that's true so anyway gardening became henry's passion and he's spending his day his days in the garden and working his garden good for him i like i mean they they had a lot of family so they needed land to feed and he would sell his vegetables and that's how they kind of Made their living. I like Henry Hines so far. He's got a good work ethic. He does. Sometime later, he started delivering his crop to the local grocer who sold vegetables and fruits to the residents of Pittsburgh. However, gradually and with traditional German thoroughness, Henry expanded his Alles business. Ordnung. <laughs> Henry expanded his business, and soon someone could buy Heinz's greatish grated horseradish at the grocery. Um, it was really familiar to a lot of local people because he used his mom's traditional recipes, which we'll see throughout this kind of story. Now, during this period of time, fooling the customers was a regular part of any business in the U.S. I know we're really Deceivery. F- we are really familiar with it with alcohol. I know this is the period of time where we've taken some tours of like bourbon distilleries and stuff and that's where proofs were coming from because people were watering down the alcohol and stuff um and so it was not uncommon to try to trick people into buying what you're not they're not buying what they think they're buying Uh, one of the local newspapers actually wrote in so-called horseradish we find more turnips and water soak wood sticks than the horseradish itself 
I don't particularly care for horseradish. I don't either. I don't even know what's in it. So that doesn't make a lot of... The radish of the horse. I guess. Um, So that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but wood-soaked sticks doesn't sound particularly appetizing. So Henry figured he needed to show the excellent quality of his product, and so he packed it in clear jars. And this is going to be a recurring theme throughout his marketing strategy. Now, such transparency and a high quality of the product made a good impression on the customers which, of course, increased the popularity of the grated horseradish Heinz was making. And when he graduated from high school, his garden had grown so much that he had to hire workers. In 1861, when Henry... Now, listen to this. This is going to blow your... I guess it's going to blow your mind. It blew my mind. In 1861, when Henry was just 17 years old, he earned a decent amount of money for those days. $2,400 which is about $43,000 in today's money. He's doing all right. What would you have done with $43,000 a year at the age of 17? I don't know. I bet you would have spent it on cars. Maybe late. Henry's mother, uh, Anna Schmidt, was his biggest cheerleader and his supporter in the case of failures. She knew how to comfort her son and instill confidence in him. And... I, she was a hugely instrumental part in his entire life. Um, she taught him communication skills. And as we mentioned, she's very, very religious. She really, really wanted Henry to become a priest. So she enrolled him in the neighborhood Lutheran school, but he didn't want to be a priest. He really liked figures and tables, which kind of also goes back to your um, Asperger's theory. That's yeah. another common trait. Just think, what if Henry had Microsoft Excel? He could have invented Microsoft Excel. He could have, yeah. Well, this is the reason he left the Lutheran school and decided to go through business training in one of the top financial American colleges called Duff's Mercantile College. Henry J. Hines financed his own education. Well, he's making $43,000. I'd say so. um, Using his own money that he collected from the sale of vegetables from his garden. In college, Hines learned how to keep records and accounting books. Later, he was regularly taking notes and led a strict accounting of income and expensive of his business. After graduating from Duff's, Henry started working at his father's brickyard. He learned all about how to make bricks and the business of making bricks. He made some minor changes in the production of how his father was doing this. Soon, his father realized that he was dependent on his son for running his business, and Henry became a very indispensable employee, and his dad recognized this. That's awesome. I mean, the kid's a genius. I wonder about his siblings during all of this. We don't know a lot about them, but I, I wonder what that must have been like to grow up with a brother who was so, like... Very involved in everything. Super smart. Super ambitious. Don't know. Interesting to think about. Henry took care of all the accounting paperwork with a lot of enthusiasm, which worked out well for his dad because his father was more interested in building and creating and doing that kind of work than running the business. He wanted to go out there and and do the hands-on type work, Mm -hmm. and it's great that his son can now do this. So in 1864... 20-year-old Henry was running a brick factory almost single-handedly. Subsequently, he was able to expand the production while his father went to visit relatives in Germany. So his dad was so confident in what he did. His, he's like, I'm... His I'm kids' gonna, his I'm retirement gonna, plan. Yeah, you're my retirement plan. I'm going to like head overseas and take a break, take vacation, you know. Nice. Factories in your hands, boy. So... um the brickyard began to bring in a decent income, and the Heinz family soon was able to move from a tiny house to a villa built from the bricks produced by their factory. I love that story. Yeah. This is such a nice story. I really like this one. Even after becoming an adult, Henry was still interested in the recipes of his mother, and he was constantly experimenting and trying to improve them. Okay, Mom, I don't like how you made that, so we're going we're gonna to do a little bit better. He was always in search of new business ideas, and he decided that the new mar- business what ideas, <laughs> and he decided the market of canned food was worth taking a look at. Hmm. So, in 1869, together with a friend and neighbor, L. Clarence Noble, he launched a company and named it Heinz and Noble. It provided restaurants and cafes with sauerkraut, grated horseradish, pickles and other products, part of that 57 variety. (laughs) 
Now, Henry knew that people didn't particularly trust canned products because of the rapid poisoning cases, so he decided not to put the name of his company on the labels. I think this is more, this is just genius. He always sent a sample of his product with a fake label, and only then, if it succeeded, did he put his brand name on it. <laughs> if the person didn't kill over, he'll... Yeah, he's like, all right, okay. I'll sell it to you. Okay. Now, the sale of prepackaged products was the right choice at that time because the steel industry or the steel casting industry was well developed in Pittsburgh, and most of the men worked for 12 hours a day, which didn't give them any time for cooking. They preferred to buy the food, which was ready for immediate consumption. Okay, now this is going to sound really sexist, but let's go back in time. Sure. So the men were out working. What were their spouses, their wives doing? I'm I would sure, assume they would be the ones doing the I cooking. I would assume, but so a, a lot of these men probably didn't have spouses. You're working 12 hours a day. When are you going to have time to date? They were arranged marriages back then. Whatever. They probably okay. didn't have spouses. By the way, I do the cooking here at our house. You do. So this is, this is uh, but this is old school times. And I'm a good cook. You are a good cook. Okay. You're a much better cook than I am. Um, so more than 60. <laughs> Unnecessary. More than 60 companies picked up this tendency and started to supply the market with various types of preserved products. Now, in that same year of 1869, young Henry fell in love and he married Sarah Sloan Young. She was a first-generation American whose family was Scotch-Irish and she attended the Methodist church where he went. They fell in love and decided to get married after the blessing of Henry's mother. Later, they had four children, three sons, Clarence, Clifford, Howard, and daughter Irene. Now, the company's revenue reached a few thousand dollars within a year of its founding, which is pretty good. I mean, that's several, you know, he's making several thousand dollars is, you know, 30, 40,000 at the time, at least. 2,400 was 43,000, so... Now, to survive in the fierce competition, it was necessary not only to provide the consumers with high-quality products, but also make them more available. So Heinz had to think about this. How could that goal be achieved? The production had to be massive. Big. Therefore, the Heinz house, which was left empty after the family had moved to the villa, was reorganized for the production of Heinz & Noble in 1874. They repurposed the house. Good for them. It was just sitting there. They yeah. were, I mean, they weren't using it for anything. Yeah, they not? owned it. You may as well. Yeah. So Henry hired several German homemakers who um, were engaged in washing and canning the vegetables. Secondly, during the springtime, they finalized an agreement of purchasing the whole crop from local farmers at a fixed price, which makes sense back in the day because, you know, without trucking and stuff like that, yeah. they, had, they had to buy local. In this way, they also saved a lot of money since during adverse weather conditions in the summer, or autumn, the cost of vegetables could increase significantly. So buy local was his motto and his theme. There you go. In addition, Heinz and Noble purchased horses and vans to deliver the crop in advance. They also brought a factory for the production of vinegar in St. Louis, Missouri. So they probably were using the train for that, but in St. Louis, it could have come up on riverboat. Mm, yeah, that would be up, cool. Up the Ohio River, yeah. What a stinky riverboat that would be. The company was a great success, and Henry became a wealthy entrepreneur, and he had the money to support his family. So things are going good. And the young businessman anticipated a considerable profit, but then something that they just couldn't predict happened. Oh, and th- no. This happens in life. I mean, we I just f- experienced this with, uh, I feel with the like, pandemic. Yeah, I feel like this was going to be like the opposite of Harlan Sanders, where no. instead of everything going wrong, everything goes right, and he lives happily ever after, and it's a smooth sailing for yeah, everything. There's, there's a lot of work that has to be done. All right. The harvest of cucumbers broke all record numbers that year, leaving their company without enough working capital to cover their contracts with the farmers. They probably could have gotten a loan with a bank, But in 1875, the U.S. financial crisis erupted, uh, and that resulted in the entire baking system being paralyzed. So, yeah, he he wasn't getting a loan. Farmers applied to the court wanting their money, uh, which resulted in Heinz and Noble just set out with 5,000 other bankrupt businesses that had to uh, do their share. All their property had to be sold in order to compensate for the losses of the farmers. Besides... To add, to get this now, to add insult to injury, the Pittsburgh leader, the newspaper, 
made fun of their business. Aww. So after reading what they consider the malicious headline, Trio in a Pickle, because they were producing pickles, yeah. uh, the Pittsburgh leader, Clarence Noble, said that he did not want to hear a word about any private business in general. So he so, quit. He's yeah. out. Yep. That's so sad. And I bet you Heinz named his kid after Clarence Noble because he has a son named Clarence. I wonder if that was his namesake. You know, he he had enough. No. But, but that's the thing. He quit. He didn't want anything to do with it. But Heinz. Henry didn't quit. Henry didn't quit. Um, He had experienced some. Now, this is a little bit of a beginning of a dark period in his life, though. As well as losing his business partner, he experienced some pretty severe emotional stress that took him a long time to recover. The Christmas of 1875 was the worst one in his life because he couldn't even afford to buy gifts for his kids. And remember, up until recently, he was wealthy. So they were living high on the hog until everything came crashing down. I would say they were like very upper middle class. Yeah, but they had, I mean, they could definitely afford Christmas presents. And now all of a sudden, the rug was just pulled out from under them. He remained depressed for a long time. And there was several a period of several months where he just didn't even get out of bed. Now, at that time, Anna always knew how to support her, her son. She she loved her kids, and she really took care of Henry. She helped him get back back into the swing of things. I'm guessing probably helped Sarah with the kids a little bit. And she gave Henry all of her savings so that he could give his business idea a second try. She now, had faith in her son. That is an awesome mom right there. Henry, remember, he's a smart kid. He used the money wisely, and he registered Heinz Food Company to the names of his relatives, including his mother, his cousin, and his brother John, and continued to produce and sell different sauces and pickles. He was the head of the company, but by law, he was not allowed to manage it because his mom owned most of the shares. Since it was her money, he wanted to be honest about it. Um, and the Heinz business became a family business. I This made me think of us. The relatives even conducted a board meeting in the kitchen during a family dinner, just like we have our production meetings we every, do it at every week over, over coffee. Um, Henry walked on foot to his field every day to check out how things were going. And eventually, after he had saved a little money, Henry J. Hines was able to buy a horse, which was affordable because of its blindness. <laughs> so, But a blind horse is better than no horse at all, I guess. Oh, so, yep. Well, the situation for the 31-year-old businessman was not an easy one. Not only did he have to start from scratch, but he had all these debts he had yeah, to pay he back. Yeah, started in the, in the yeah. red. Yep. So Henry Henry John Heinz worked really hard, canning the jars on his own to pay off all his debts that he had to all these people that he owed. He said, I'm wearing my brain and my body out, he wrote in his diary titled Panic Times. Henry tried to figure out where he'd made his mistake. I mean, he pondered and he pondered yeah, he over this. he was on it, and then he yeah. just lost it. Yeah, and he decided that his his big critical error occurred in the processing of growing vegetables. He concluded that the Heinz Food Company should have its own land to control and the in, to manage the entire cycle of production, starting with growing of the seedlings and ending up with the delivery of the canned vegetables into the the trade or into the smart. network, yeah. So he wanted he wanted to smart. control all of that. Yeah, he didn't have to worry about the he farmers didn't, he anymore. He didn't have to depend on all those people. Yeah. So this was the only way to ensure the product's quality and to reduce the risk of failure caused by weather conditions or economic crisis, because he basically controlled it all. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much the weather, but the economic stuff. Sure. He, could, he can manage. Oh yeah. However, the fact remained that his business was totally dependent on weather and the ability to grow crops versus the other factories and the other businesses that he was. I, he really wasn't competing, but he needed. Yeah. yeah he, I know we don't know the yeah. answer to this, but I'm, I'm really curious. If anybody does know the answer, please write to us and let us know. I wonder where um, like indoor, like greenhouses and that kind of thing were, when were those things invented and the ability to, because uh, now we, you don't necessarily have that issue as much. I mean, you still do to well, some yeah, extent, I mean, but. For a while, you ate according to the season. Seasons, yeah. And now we can get 
basically right fresh. well we're a global economy yeah, too, we can, but yeah we can get fresh produce yeah year round so i'm curious though when yeah. like grow houses and things started becoming popular to where he could even not even have to worry about the weather if you know write to us and let us know well with this on his mind he decided that he needed to focus on quality henry tried to make mustard but in early 1876 while working in the kitchen he came up with a tomato paste or sauce which we now know as ketchup mm-hmm. so he now there there was a rumor that there, there was a chinese condiment called kai tsayap which was a brine sauce or with canned fish and was a prototype of ketchup which the rumor was that heinz had introduced this as his product but with with minor changes but the fact was that by this time, the the tomato-based ketchup that he was producing was already on the market. Initially, customers avoided ketchup, but not because they didn't trust the quality of tomatoes. It was because of a story of how in 1776, a loyalist cook had tried to poison George Washington with a dish made of tomatoes, and this was known by every American, but they only learned about it until... I mean, they only learned about it in 1820. So here again, we go with the conspiracy (laughs) theories and how this kind of hurt his business. Tomatoes were not considered poisonous anymore, but this applied only to fresh fruit. Unripe and rotten tomatoes, which were used for tomato paste production, were still considered poisonous. Later, it turned out that this actually was the truth because such tomatoes contained a powerful poison called solanine. Now, at the time, in Europe, the tomato sauce was widespread. The German Botanical Dictionary, published in 1811, said, Even though tomatoes are considered to be poisonous, they are used for the production of sour sauce in Portugal and Bohemia. So it's hard to believe that they believed that tomatoes weren't good to eat, that they were poisonous. Yeah, I mean, they, I think, well, and they were poisonous, though. Like, if you eat, you know, tomatoes, if they're not at the right um, develop, stage of development, they have solanine in them and they can make you really sick. But, okay. Now, Henry's mother, who came from Bohemia, knew how to make a, a delicious tomato sauce and this was the recipe, which became a formula for the most popular ketchup brand nowadays. Sauce or ketchup made from fresh tomatoes grown by Heinz in the fields of Pennsylvania so everyone could personally make sure that only the choicest tomatoes were used was a great success. And the ketchup did more than just delight consumers. It could improve the taste of a variety of products from sausages to pasta. To French fries. To French fries. Henry continued to expand the range of preserved sauces and marinades that he made. Kim, I got to interrupt you for one second. Please do not put your ketchup on steak. Uh, okay, just don't do it. We'll, we'll get into the, the rarity of steak or lack thereof another time. Okay. Ketchup was followed by products like sauces made of red and green peppers, chili, apple cider and dips, olives, pickled onions and cauliflower, baked beans and pickles. And Henry started to regain confidence after that bankruptcy that he suffered. So no more laying in bed for months at a time. Now, at the time of the economic crisis, when Heinz owed a considerable amount of money to the Pittsburgh farmers and grocers, he had promised that he would return to them all everything that they had lost and were owed to the last cent even though legally bankruptcies you didn't have to do that he was cleared of it he was yeah but he was a good he was a good man and when his revenue increased significantly honest and conscientious henry gradually started to pay back his debts even though it took him five years to clear them all only after that henry hines became legal owner of the company making its headquarters in pittsburgh pennsylvania so they were always around Pittsburgh. It sounds like he just moved the headquarters into Pittsburgh. Yeah, I'm not really sure, yeah. but that's, I mean, where, well, that's where Maybe they were are. still working in the house. Oh, could be. The old house. Henry tried to make quality products to the highest level that he possibly could. To do this, he was organizing the plant and various systems controlling the quality, introducing new technologies, and continuously experimenting with package. So he tinkered. I mean, at a great level, I mean, I think a tinkering with like something you do with your fingers, but he was... He tinkered. 
tinkered tinkered, his whole life. Yeah, but he was tinkering with big things to try to try to improve this whole process. He believed that the appearance of the bottle was the most important thing in the product's image. He saw that consumers were not trusting canned foods in opaque jars. Henry decided the customer should see what the product contains inside, so he started using glass bottles for his ketchup. Just like he did with the horseradish back in the day. Yep. The clear bottle, now it had its pros and cons. Obviously, a clear bottle showed off the beautiful red color of the ketchup to the buyers, and it enhanced the credibility of Heinz in the product. However, on the other hand, ketchup often over time would start to darken, and this didn't give such a good look to the product. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I would love to find out how you listeners store your ketchup because we got into a discussion with a friend of ours one day uh, years ago. We store our ketchup in the fridge, but you don't have to. And they keep its red color. Ketchup is shelf stable. So you don't have to store it in the fridge after and it's Jess's been open. Jess's ketchup turned Jess's ketchup was more maroon. More of a dark, dark reddish brown. But I mean, it was still good to eat. But if you keep it in the fridge, it just maintains that Except red color. Except those poison tomatoes that probably came it's out of not, it. It's not. Yeah. Anyway. It's fine. Anyway. So I'm really curious if you store your ketchup in, let right, let us know. Do you store your ketchup in the pantry or do you store it in the fridge? And if you store it in the pantry. Don't do it, it. Does it bother you that it's brown and not red like it's supposed to be? Okay. Well, Heinz figured out how to eliminate this little inconvenience. So he glued labels around the neck of the bottle, just like right there. Yeah. And if you tap on that 57, <laughs> that's where the, the ketchup comes out or that, that helps the ketchup come out, come out. Over time, the company expanded in size, and it increased the number of personnel working at at the plant, at the factory, and this created a whole new problem for Henry. Anytime you're dealing with people. Yeah. In the summer of 1892, the employees of Carnegie Steel Company, which was also located in Pittsburgh, they went on strike protesting mass layoffs from work. Ten people were killed during a fight at the factory, and several dozen were injured, now, this is presumably presumably with uh, police and factory security forces. To end the conflict, the governor of Pennsylvania brought in troops, so think the National Guard, to the city to quell and the, the riots and to bring in peace. Now, Henry was shocked by this case, so he immediately started to improve working conditions in his factories. And the workers of Heinz had a few breaks during the day, which was nice. That was kind of a little unusual. They could also take a bath after working a shift. All the women were given fresh aprons and bonnets, and the ones uh-huh. who peeled the cucumbers were given a free manicure every week. Yeah. I want to go work for Heinz. Every factory worker also had a free medical service guaranteed, which is more revolutionary than what a lot of places do now. His factory had a family atmosphere. It had its own groups of interests and even a choir. So that work in his team was very prestigious and but kind of the trade-off, but also kind of good, is that Henry established stringent hygiene requirements. That's not a bad thing. No, it's not. I mean, right now we have to have in the if you go to the bathroom in a restaurant, <laughs> you have to have a sign that says employees must wash hands. Where at the Heinz factory, you could take a shower after your your yeah. shift. So I'm all about hygiene. Yeah. No other company that was producing especially food. in food service. Yeah. Well, especially with COVID, just you know, barely in our rear view. No other company producing food could compete with Heinz and sanitation. And that applied not only to the factory, but also the cultivation of vegetables and fruits in the field. You know what I learned, though? What's Over that? COVID? What? That sign, it's there for a reason. Ooh. You'd be surprised how many people don't wash their hands. Yikes. Okay. Anyway, back to the story. <laughs> Mainly, John Henry Heinz was the first businessman to master the production of organic foods. He never used chemical preservatives in his products, and he never considered other manufacturers to be his competitors in terms of quality. This is some pretty, like... Revolutionary stuff for the day. Revolutionary was not the word I was going for. I was going for more of... I don't know what the word I'm looking for. More of like a... Ooh, burn. Of his rivals are not other manufacturers. They're ordinary housewives. Like, it's almost like... 
you other manufacturers are not, you, you can't even compete with me. Ladies, wash your hands before you make your sauces. Honestly, that's kind of what it was. It was his mindset was like, these other, these other factories can't even compete with me. The only person that can compete with me is mom and grandma over there slaving away all day. That's how good my stuff is. Yeah. So Henry, he steadily moved around the country promoting the company's products from trains. He liked to travel on the train. He sincerely believed that the consumers had to try the product to buy it. Each Heinz store was supplied with probes or samples of his product. He called them probes. Moreover, he even invented a special cardboard spoon that could be immediately thrown away after trying a product. And we see this a lot like if you go to an ice, ice cream, cream store. Yeah, they yeah. have the plastic spoons. Yeah, yeah. yeah or they, those little wooden spoons, whatever. Yeah. In the course of his business, Henry would make several trips from Pittsburgh uh, back and forth to New York. And he would, as he was thinking, he would call this a his traveling a school of life. He always made notes on his observations along the way. In 1893, Heinz took part in the world's Columbia Columbian Exposition in Chicago. He was given a booth on the third floor of the exhibition hall. Now, the allocated space to him was not the most convenient one because the visitors had no real desire to climb to the third floor. Yeah, this is before elevators and escalators and all of the handy-dandy ways of getting up to the third floor. Well, Henry being the guy that he was, to entice them to come up, he came up with the following. He printed golden foil labels the sign on which stated that this label would be exchanged for a free prize in a booth on the third floor. Hmm. He placed them all over the place so that as people were walking around, they it's would like see a this. Golden it, ticket. It caught their yeah, it's the golden ticket. Well, people fell for the trick and won in a present. They walked up the stairs to Henry's booth at the expo- exposition. There, the very first thing they saw was a huge amount of cans and bottles of Heinz products put on display in the form of a pyramid. Kind of like what we do in grocery stores now, a lot of places. Yeah. Thanks to the ingenuity of Henry, his products have become the highlight of the program. So what was the prize? Just a sample of a Heinz product? I don't know. Maybe he uh, gave him a jar of pickles or Ooh, a bottle of a ketchup good, or something like that. That's a good that. prize. Well, the business methods used by Heinz were giving excellent results. And of course, his rivals started to use them as well. They <laughs> copycats. Henry had to start taking some extreme measures. For example, Heinz was buying all the empty jars made of glass in the town because the other people were starting to copycat him and using it for, they were wanting to use the glass for their own production. Well, Henry Henry brought up all the glass jars so he would be the only one with the glass jars so he could use it for his production. All the rest, the excess, he loaded up on a barge, took them out in the middle of the Allegheny River, and he sunk the barge so that his competitors would not be able to use the glass Seems jars. Seems like a waste. I just, I, why didn't he storm? Uh, I don't right, know. that's what I don't understand. Maybe he maybe, didn't have maybe a room? Was, maybe he was angry or something at the time. That, that doesn't, seems a little out of character, but okay. The H.J. Heinz Company became a pure family business. Many of Heinz's relatives worked in the company. He gradually taught his sons, and then they all started working in his company, either in sales, and then they would move to management. And even though he treated his subordinates very politely, he could very easily take all the necessary measures if he saw that someone didn't perform well. Once, he even had to fire his brother John when the results of his operation significantly deteriorated because he was constantly late and he worked really slowly. Yeah, talk about some family strife right there. Yep. For the sake of the community or the company and its future prosperity, Henry had to make difficult decisions like that. Any of his relatives were obliged to perform as well as any of the other workers of the company, and the fact that he was a member of the Heinz family was never taken into account. I would imagine that Henry probably held himself to the same standards. He probably did. In the winter of 1886, Henry J. Heinz agreed to go to Europe as his family had asked him to. Arriving in London, Heinz immediately went to the procurement manager of Fortnum and Mason department store, who was the supplier of the British Royal household and demonstrated the samples of his products. So he's got an in with the king and queen and the corgis and the corgis. I believe Mr. Heinz. Wait, hold on. Let me try that again. I believe Mr. Heinz will buy all of this. The manager said 
So England became the first foreign market selling the Heinz brand. After 10 years, sales had grown enough that Heinz was basically forced to open an office in London, actually not far from the Tower of London, which I'm guessing is probably prime real estate. Following that, he built a factory and bought a large plot of land over there as well, which caused a lot of Englishmen to believe that Heinz was actually a British company. And from that moment, Heinz product came into international trade, which was really significant as those days, American products were not widespread in Europe. In 1898, Henry left the United States on vacation to visit his ancestors in Germany. He went uh, on a trip with his wife, Sarah Sloan Young Heinz, who had hoped, and they'd hoped to see a doctor in Europe to get rid of some chest pains that she had been having. After that visit, Heinz began to visit the family's homeland every year. The job of Henry J. Heinz basically caused him to travel around the world regularly, but he always spent his vacations in Germany. Well, after that trip, Sarah's condition did not improve after the journey, and her chest pain only intensified. Henry's wife's conditions grew worse, and at the age of 51, she passed away. After the death of his wife, Henry built the Sarah Hines House in her memory. Today, it is a youth center, and it hosts a wide variety of entertainment and sporting events. Oh, that's awesome. Henry never married again. Henry started taking all his vacations in Germany, and he, he liked to go to Bad Kissingen, which was his, I guess, his favorite place to go. It was like a spa, yeah. probably. Yeah. However, in the summer of 1914, Heinz didn't have a chance to relax because he was forbidden to leave his hotel room because he was a U.S. citizen. And of course, we know what happened in World in uh, I just gave it away. In 1914, World War One started. He barely escaped Germany through Holland, and unfortunately, Henry never had a chance to go back to Germany. He even spoke up in favor of the Americans to take part in the war against the German Reich. And World War I caused a lot of changes in the German communities of America, which I can imagine probably German immigrants were not treated very well. Um, German newspapers went out of print in 1917. German classes were reduced in schools. It was forbidden to even speak German. Um, for a lot of immigrants who didn't know English, this was an actual disaster. I remember taking a Cincinnati, which is just south of us, about an hour, had um, has always had a huge German population as well. And I remember taking a, a tour of Cincinnati, and they were talking about how um, some of the streets that were named after German immigrants, they renamed the streets because they sounded too German Sounding, and I would be willing to bet that probably some of those things happened in Pittsburgh as well. Well, it happened in Martin County, Kentucky, Himmlerville. Oh yeah, they became, I don't like, know if we mentioned beauty that on the show. and lovely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so things got renamed. It was just it was not a not a great time if you were a German in America. In 1920, the situation was slightly improved, but it was never really fully restored. The Heinz family stopped speaking German and cut all connections with Germany. Now, even in his 70s, Henry didn't think about stopping to work. Um, He still visited the factory regularly. He watched the progress of his business. And his grandchildren became his true happiness. He had 11 of them. And they all loved to travel the world with Grandpa Henry, which is so, so nice. We need to get on it. We only got seven. We need to catch up with Henry Hines. Journeys had always been his passion. He even opened a Heinz Pier in Atlantic City, New Jersey when he was younger to demonstrate Heinz food products and where he kept all the treasures of art and souvenirs that he bought from his trips. He really liked watches and canes for some reason, and there were a considerable amount of them stored in the exhibition hall. And additionally, the Heinz Pier provided demonstration kitchens with free hot and cold food samples. Unfortunately, that pier was destroyed by a massive hurricane in 1944. Even more unfortunately, at the age of 74, Henry J. Heinz contracted pneumonia and he passed away. Mm-hmm. Now, his employees raised money to put up a monument, which can still be found in the main building of the company. Before dying, Henry asked to build a church in honor of his mother. Today, this church is located on the campus of Pittsburgh. After the death of Henry J. Hines, his son, Howard Hines, took over the management of the business. He continued to follow the main principle of his father. The company must 
have the entire production cycle from start to finish, being that what he really wanted to preserve. This allowed the Heinz Company to not only survive the Great Depression, but also even master the production of baby food and instant soups, which were in high demand during that rough period of time. Sales in the might of H.J. Heinz Company grew day by day. Howard Heinz showed himself as a very competent manager, so you know that family trait was passed on, it looks like. He was able to anticipate the desires of the market and to meet them. In 1941, H.J. Jack Hines II, who was a grandson of the founder, headed the company. Now, World War II by this time had started, and uh, he was able to earn a whole lot of money for the company by supplying the army with Heinz products. They also converted part of the factory to build glider wings to help support the war effort. He managed a broad expansion of the family business by building factories worldwide, including factories in Portugal, Mexico, the Netherlands, Italy, and several other countries. Today, about 32,000 employees work at the Heinz factories worldwide. The company's value was worth about $136 billion in September 1918. Heinz ketchup is present in almost every other refrigerator on the planet. So that answers your question. Every other person is put in their pantry, not in their <laughs> there, fridge. There you go. Now, in modern times, in 1959, longtime employee Frank Armour, you know that name. Armour? Yeah? I make fun of you for eating their potted meat all the oh, time. Okay. <laughs> and creator of viney sausages. I don't like those. Frank Armour was elected president. You didn't know that he worked for Heinz, did you? I like the pate. It's not pate. It's potted meat. He was elected president in 1959 to succeed Jack Heinz. So he was the first non-Heinz to um, operate the Heinz company. And in 2015, Heinz merged with another multinational company. Do you know which one it was? Yes, I do. Kraft? Craft Foods uh, to become a food juggernaut. So now they are Kraft Heinz. Um, their latest CEO, most recent CEO was elected in 2019. Um, and uh, they're trucking right along, doing a great, great business. John Henry Heinz once said, as I did not become a priest, I have to find another way to do some good to mankind. And I think that by creating ketchup and employing all kinds of men and women throughout the decades in really stellar working conditions, um, I think he has done a lot of good to mankind. Well, what do you think about we just make this bottle of ketchup a, uh, a part of the decoration here in the studio? We can do that. We can do that. We can do that. So another great story of personal drive. Despite the setbacks that Henry Hines had, he never quit. Yeah, it amazing stories and got a little depressed there for a little bit but he picked himself up and moved on and yeah and again this is going to be a trait we're going to see with a lot of these food giants that went I mean, there there was some genius and as we start to cover like Clarence Birdseye and Milton Hershey you know, big visions and this was a trait that we're seeing with yeah. a lot of these guys. Especially Milton Hershey. I can't wait to talk about him. He is, he's one, I think Milton Hershey and Henry Hines are kind of in the same league in my book. As yep. far as guys that really looked out for their employees. Yep. So anyway, that's it. That should wrap up this week's show. Yes, sir. So how do people get hold of us? You can write to us at alosthour at gmail.com, just like our lovely friend Cynthia. We got a very sweet email from a lady who um, has uh, some family heirlooms from the Xenia tornado that we referenced. Um, and she, she was kind enough to write to us and tell us some stories and things, and we were very excited to hear from her. And so she's, thank you, Cynthia. And she is recommending... An hour of your life to her children, so yeah, they so can listen. They, know where they can listen about the tornado. Yeah. So thank you, Cynthia. That was a very kind letter that you sent to us. Um, we'd love to hear from you guys. So even if it's 
you know, whatever, even if it's just a, Hey, how you doing? We love to hear from you. So write to us at a lost hour at gmail.com. You can also find us at an hour of your You can get in touch with us there. We're on all the socials, not so active on Twitter anymore, but definitely on Instagram and Facebook. Yep. And if you are local in the Miami Valley, you might want to listen to the nine three seven podcast. So mm-hmm. you're thinking, well, what am I going to do this weekend? Yeah. Listen to the nine three seven podcast and it should give you a clue of all the things to do here in the Miami Valley this weekend. Weather permitting. Yeah. I know there were some issues with the Levitt this week. Yeah. So if you want to help us out, tell a friend, you know where to get hold of us, but tell a friend about the, uh, about an hour of your life. Yeah. Share it. And you know, maybe they'll enjoy some of our stories too. Absolutely. All, all right. right. Anything else? I think that's it. All right. So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include Astrum People, the History Channel, the Heinz Company's website, HeinzHistoryCenter.org, and Britannica.